Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi there, I'm Danny Kelly. Welcome to the latest podcast in my Sporting Life series. And my guest on this podcast is one of my favourite fast bowlers ever. He enjoyed the ups and the downs of international cricket like no other bowler of recent times. He won the Ashes and he was laughed at for all the way he lost England the Ashes. My guest on this podcast of My Sporting Life is the wonderful Steve Harmison. Steve, you grew up in Ashington in Northumberland. What kind of place is that? Um, former mine in town. Very working class area with good people. Didn't the Charltons grow up there? Yes, the Charltons. Wow. Um, Bobby and Jackie. I still see Jackie every now and again on a Friday at the, at the local golf club. He comes in, uh, he comes in every now and again. Um, obviously, Jackie Milburn as well, who was related to the, the, the Charlton family. Yeah. And, you know, the new, a new Ashes hero in Mark Wood. Of course, Mark Wood's from up there as well. We'll talk about Mark a little later on. And what's your childhood like? Um, very good. Yeah, I, was, I was one of uh, five children. Um, I had a, a stepbrother, um, and obviously there was four of us lived in. From my, my mum and dad, that you know, I was I was brought up with. We had um, you know, I was the oldest of four. Uh, younger brother James, younger sister Joanne, younger brother Ben, who played cricket for Durham and now plays for Kent. And then, like I said before, my stepbrother Darren, who was a little bit older than me. Do you still do you still support your brother now that he's become a traitor and moved to Kent? No, no, I still support him. Yeah, he's uh, he's playing with one of me. He actually plays alongside one of my best mates. So Rob Key, who yeah. is a big friend of Talksport, he's um, he's never off, is he? He's never off. No, no. He's actually he's never off Talksport and he's never off Sky. But he's better. He's a bit. Yeah, he's got a great face for radio, um, so, so he's perfect for it. That's, per- that's perfectly fair. Now the thing is, Steve, for somebody who goes on to become a top international cricketer, you actually grew up in a football household. I did. Yes, I, I very much so. Yeah, Your dad, I, Jimmy, was a was a player and a manager. Yeah, he played at he played for you know the local sides. He went we went down to Yeovil. I could have been a, a Somerset boy if uh, if it had worked out. He went down to Yeovil when I was eighteen months. This is to play the game. To yeah? play the game. Yeah, yeah. He, he played a couple of years down there, and then obviously we moved back. Um, a little bit of you know a bit of homesickness, but also a, another opportunity up north that 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 went that way. So you know they moved back north, and you know I. I 
I was born and I was born and brought up as well as my other brothers in sort of in and around non-league football because mm-hmm. you know dad played a lot of a lot of non-league football up until he was about 44 45 so from that point of view we were around a non-league dressing room a hell of a lot hence why I moved into that you yourself as you as you're growing up you, you're obviously very good at both cricket and football because you're you're on the uh, you're at the school of excellence with Newcastle while making your way through the representative sides at cricket as well how did this happen yeah well I, no, obviously fo- football was always something I was more interested in than uh, than, than the cricket um, I always played I always finished the football season started the football season so I missed the, the sort of start and end of, of, of any sort of cricket season up to about 15 16 year old um, I played senior football at a young age you know, as soon as I was 16th birthday, I started playing with men, which I thought helped me. But as a junior, I was at, yes, I was at the School of Excellence and everybody, when you hear people say I was at Newcastle this or I was at such and such clubs when yeah. I was a kid. Yeah, that means nothing, to be fair. There was, I think, out of two two big groups of the age groups I was in around, I think there's only one player that, that stayed on at Newcastle out of about 30-odd players. So, And that was the first time I'd met John Carver, who last year was a Newcastle manager, he was Sir Bobby Robson's assistant manager, which came in, you know, later on we'll talk about when we were in the mm. Caribbean, how I became trainer with Newcastle, and it came through John. I first met John at nine-year-old. and you know, How good were you at football, and what position did you play? Um, I was always a defender. Um, I couldn't catch many, but I could kick everybody, so that was the, <laughs> that was the thing that I was, uh, I was always... Yeah, I was always better at, but it, it it became quite apparent when I got to 15, 16 that the slower I was at football, the faster I was playing cricket. So well, you were lucky as well then, over, because, yeah. because I know that Jeff Cook, um, who was uh, when he played for Northumberland, spotted you. You joined up with Durham's under 16s and signed for the County Academy a few weeks later. And next here on my Sporting Life, we'll look at your early years playing cricket and your progress into the Durham First Eleven, which led to you making your England Test debut. Steve, um, given all that, you quickly quickly made your mark in first-class cricket with Durham um, and signed up with them, making your debut in 1996. They had hadn't long been um, uh, in the county championship, but I think only four years at that stage. What kind of a place was it to play your cricket, Durham? It was, yeah, you know, I, I loved it. I loved playing at, at Chester Street. It's a fantastic place. Um, when we first went in there, we were, we were rightly, you know, we, we were a young young side the the gun of the days of the Botham the Jones the Larkins and all that that established the, the county from 92 to then in 96 when I first went in we were a very very young side we weren't very good let's be fair our teams were coming up for two days and not for four because we were getting rolled over um, but then we signed somebody who for me changed the, the face of um, cricket in the northeast, and that was David Boone he met us uh, more steely determination the, the professionalism that he brought I think just you know, moved us on to a different level. We stood still again for a few years, a couple of years, and then when sort of Mike Hussey and Dale Benkenstein took the club on, we started getting better and better, and that concrete foundation is what has built Durham's legacy on it on now. Yeah, and of course now it's one of the top counties, and more importantly, keeps turning out England cricketers, um, which is one of the things I think the counties are there for. Um, you were quickly to the attention, I think it's fair to say, of uh, you know you, you made a mark in the county uh, in the county game, um, but also in the way in the way that sometimes happens, the, the national selector starts to take notice of you, um, and you went with the ECB. 
B National Academy a team to to Australia in the winter of 2001-2002. Uh, that was very important. I mean, there were some top players in that team. Um, Andrew Strauss went, uh, Ian Bell, uh, your, ne- your, your friend, as you mentioned there, Rob Key. Yeah, it was an interesting trip, that one. I, I got picked in 2000 for England at, at Lords and then at Trent Bridge and at Edgebaston. Didn't play um, in, a, in the squad there. And then I got you know pushed into the academy the following year to mm-hmm. to Australia. Um, I didn't enjoy I must admit, I didn't enjoy it. Um, Why it is that, Steve? It was, it was a bit... It was a bit school. We, we, we were maybe guinea pigs for that first trip over to Australia. And I thought it was probably right for under 19s to go down that road not sort of men who had played first class cricket for the best part of four or five years um, I don't think Rod Marsh really understood what was actually happening to the extent that we took a lot of backroom staff and they're the backroom staff that were there that had to do their jobs where Rod was in his own back garden he'd pop in for his little session and then he'd pop home where we were we were sort of we were doing 10 hours a day in this big brother house and after about six weeks seven weeks of the first trip we come home for Christmas and I just honestly Johnny Abraham's arguably saved my career by 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 staying back and I refused to go back I couldn't go back I thought I'm not I've got a house I've got mortgage with kids and I'm playing professional cricket for Durham mm-hmm. and playing well and I'm getting treated like a school kid here <clears throat> and some of the, the fitness side of the stuff and we were getting taught life skills and I was thinking well life skills not going to do me any good against Ricky Ponton or Matthew Hayden or yeah, Justin Langer next week next next year when, when we go to Australia and life skills isn't really going to help me you know, forge too much in my professional cricket career as well as you know, teaching me things that I'm not saying that I wouldn't say I already knew, but like I said before, you know, I had children at the time, and I was thinking, what am I doing in this place? And it's interesting, Steve, because um, I mean, you have, of course, you're very young, but you ha- you already have a family. Um, do you think that? Uh, I mean, it's quite, it's quite. You have to be quite strong-headed to decide I'm not going back there. Yeah, I, I did, and I, I was. Oh, the one thing I've always done, Danny, was back everything I did with the cricket ball. Yeah, you know, forget anything else. I always, and I was probably my own worst enemy sometimes. That I was too stubborn from my own good, but I backed what I could do and my ability to do my job properly. You know, whether whether I did it and whether I didn't. You know, people will judge. You know, I've, I've, people will say it about me that I, did I fulfil my potential? Does anybody fulfil their potential? Yeah, a handful, and they're normally classed as great. Um, for me, I felt as though I give everything I possibly could every time I went out and played, and I wanted. And I always backed the, the the thing that I felt as though I could do properly, and that was the bowl cricket balls. And yeah, I wasn't a massive one on the gym, but I never shirked my responsibility in bowling. I always felt as though a fast bowler, the best way a fast bowler could get fit was bowling. Yeah, and that's the only way you could get fit because no matter how many weights or how many jumps or how many of these things you can, you know, round ladders or anything you can do, at the end of the day. Bowling is a, a unique art. I was going to say, there's, there's nothing else like it really in the sporting world, that, particularly bowling quickly, running up from a huge distance, turning your body through that pivot. There, there isn't really a training that can that can get you ready for it. Let me ask you then, Steve, there was a time when, you know, you weren't in the England team and you do make your, your debut. I remember, though, Ian Botham, I wonder if you're aware of this, Ian Botham, every time he was asked about England's bowling attack before you got into the team, he would say, I think this lad, this lad in Durham is good, and 
and your name was being bandied about, particularly by Ian Botham, a lot. Yeah, well, no, that might be a northern thing. You hear Sir Ian talk about... Well, because he played for Durham, didn't he? So he kind of watched out for it, didn't he? Yeah, he did. But whenever you talk about... Whenever you hear Sir Ian talk about northern lads, he always talks about the good northern boys. Um, he's He's got a soft spot for the northeast. Yeah, look, you know, I'll probably do the same with, with kids. And when I commentate that, if I see that I feel as though they should be playing, I'll... I'll back my my own eyes and judgments that the you know the I feel as though it's not a case they should be playing but it's a case of we should be looking at these th- uh, these things um but on that on that front uh, obviously I was very fortunate that I had somebody like that in my corner chomping the the sort of Harmison case but when it comes down to it you know I I, I ended up going back I did end up going back to the academy I dislocated my shoulder after about three weeks um I came back got through the the, the sort of rehab program started the season well and eventually got on the England team which was which was pleasing and to make your debut no matter where you play in the world or whatever you play whatever ground it is it's always special when you play that first time and I made my debut with two of my best mates so yeah the more the special Rob Key and who else Rob Key and Andrew Flintoff which was are you all three started together and it was in Trent Bridge against India yeah yeah, well, no, Andrew started before that, but yeah. he was in the team when we played, and obviously yeah. me, me, Keezy, and, and Andrew, we we played under 19 cricket together, so we we came we came together, and the the debut was quite amusing because you you get to the picture the picture stage where the captain, the chairman, and selector stands with the debutant, gives him a cap, and Nasser Hussain walks up throws his cap at me and says well done Durham throws it at Keezy and says well done Kent and off he popped and that was NASA's way of being a little bit of Essex humour so yes, uh, yeah, it's not really got any better to be not, fair no 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 no, not much ceremony at all there um, you, you you played that one game against India and then you went to Australia and that, as you said in the winter of 2002-2003 um, it was it was you know it was, a, it was not a good tour for England they got walloped in the in the in the series 4-1 won the last test in in uh, in Sydney, I think you played the last four or the five tests, but at the start of it, Steve, you'll remember, you know what I'm going to say now, don't you? Against the uh, chairman's 11 at Lilac Hill, you bowled seven consecutive wides. I did. Now, now I that, I, and honestly, Danny, I can't remember any of it. It was it was, it was crazy, honestly. It's not an excuse because later, no, no, later, later on in my career, later on in my career, I bowled more than more than my own fair share of wides. Uh, including to be the fair. most famous wide in the history of cricket. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm probably remembered for I'm, I'm probably remembered for bowling one ball. I think in my first class career, I bowled something like sixty thousand cricket balls, and I'm remembered for that one. But well, we will talk I, I, about I, it, Steve. Fine. But there are other ones I want to there talk is, about as well. Trust there me. Is. But the Lilac Hill one was 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 quite amusing. The, the role you had at Lilac Hill first game of the tour and it's against probably the the ear side with about two or three veterans in so if you beat them the, the two or three veterans that haven't played for maybe five or six years they can say well you're just playing against you know young lads and a couple of old men yeah they do it very very well um there's about 12 15 thousand people there crammed into this little ground and right round the boundary's edge where the rope is there was loads of school kids and I've been hit the, the ball's been hit down to, through the field and I've gone chasing after it and I'm now going to dive to pull it back feet first and then I'm realising I'm going into these kids studs up so I've had to change my mind and go f- sort of face first I've gone to pull it back and I've ended up in a massive heap and def- fast bowler should not dive and I've ended up banging my head off the, off the sort of rope and the floor and I've got no idea what's going on and where I am 
So I have a couple of overs off, and then when I came back onto the field, I'm still a bit groggy, but I'm I'm 20, 22 year old. I'm wanting to play for England, cool. and showing everybody what I can do, and it was just one of them moments. So you didn't, it didn't happen. So yeah, it, it it's life. I wouldn't I wouldn't change the decision to go back on the field because I was desperate to play for cricket for England. You played in four of the five tests. It was uh, one of those uh, series down under which didn't go so well. Australia won in Adelaide, Perth. Well, they won the first four. Can you remember, A, what did it feel like, and B, could you imagine that within a few years England would actually be able to beat this this great Australian team? I loved it. Danny, I loved it. It was brilliant. Now, the part I didn't love, I carried Simon Jones off in Brisbane. I was on the front end of the stretcher when he got carried off, and there was yeah. somebody threw a Coke can at him. I actually nearly dropped Simon because I was going in to talk this bloke out. <laughs> Good man. I was literally carrying him off, and somebody threw a can at him, which was you know, totally disrespectful. But, yeah, that's life. Um, and I, rem- I remember thinking once he had gone off, you know, I've got a chance to play in these next four games. And you look down that team, you know, Langer, Hayden, Ponton, Martin, yeah, Steve Vaught. Gillespie uh, Lee. Gillespie Lee. I've, I've missed somebody out there. Yeah, it was ridiculous, <laughs> the side. Yeah, it's ridiculous, yeah. the side. And I thought, well, yeah, the, 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 the first initial thought was, if you can do all right against these lot, you can play against anybody in the world and you can play anywhere in the world. And I felt, you know, I didn't take the volume of wickets I would like, I think to about nine or ten wickets in the four test matches, but I I felt as though I left Australia people saying good things about me, which was which was always good. Um, one of the big moments at the end, the, yeah, whatever happens on the field, people can see. And yeah, there's however many thousand people um, in the ground, millions of people watching on the TV, the things that you don't see behind the scenes. And it was, I I remember going and, and sat in a dressing room and a few of the, my teammates didn't want to go into the, the Australian dressing room. And I, I went in with Rob Key, Mark Butcher, James Foster, and John Crawley was there, Michael Vaughan was there. And we went in and we had a beer and we had more than one, I must admit, sitting after we won in Sydney. But I sat in that dressing room, and at one point in the afternoon, I'm sitting between, I'm sitting next to Brett Lee, Steve Vaughan, Glenn McGrath, and I'm 23 year old, 24 year old from Ashton, and I'm thinking, you know what? Yeah, this is the best education I could possibly get. I couldn't, I couldn't have had it any better talking to these great people, great players, and they're going down as great players. And I'm, and I'm in this company. That for me, that for me, give me a hell of a lot of confidence that I can actually perform at this level. And when we go on and we talk about the Ashes in 2005, I don't, I don't for one minute that we were too friendly and just thought we won the key battles. Uh, we talked about um, the the Ashes, the unsuccessful Ashes tour in Australia in the World Cup in which you didn't play. There was a tour to Bangladesh and Sri Lanka in the winter 2003-04. What do you remember about that? The Bangladesh one went really part of it went you know went well we were actually you know talking in the, in the previous section about you know things that people don't see we had a massive choker look in bangladesh and you know we got to dhaka we were there for six weeks in the minute we got there there was a guy coming to the the team room oh we just just sort of arrived and everybody's a bit tired and this guy who's a scottish chef who was on work placement actually in the hotel said look lads if anything you want anything i'm in i'm in charge here just give me a buzz and i'll sort you out some sort of decent food because you're always worried on them tours sure. what you're eating and then and, and there's a sort of whether the hygiene and whether you you know the deli belly and all that and for six weeks he looked after us brilliantly and that was a that was a fantastic stroke of luck um 
when it comes to that because you always felt a bit more confident in what you were eating, which then we were putting fuel in your body, especially when you were taking a hell of a lot out in the in the conditions that that, that the, the, the the subcontinent does give you. Well, you you got nine wickets in the game against Bangladesh, uh, nine for seventy uh, nine for seventy nine, incredible. And then a, a slight injury in your back forced you to miss the test against Sri Lanka. So let's turn move on to. Because, um, you know, you'll forgive me if uh, you've had a long, distinguished career. But we are heading towards 2005. We all know what we're going to talk about one stage in this programme and hopefully for quite a long time. There's three series coming up now. The tour away to the West Indies, at home to New Zealand, then home to uh, the West Indies. But I think it's the one away in the West Indies where we first start to see really that, uh, you know, without being um, uh, immodest, you can say Steve Harmison becomes a, 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 a proper test bowler and B, one of the great in the world yeah I did yes but I think to go back a little bit Danny that mm-hmm. that Bangladesh trip there was more to meet the eye of what, what came from that Bangladesh trip as sort of meat on the bones which got me to the West Indies where yeah, there's a lot of water gone under the bridge in between there they're the Bangladesh got nine wickets in Dhaka came off in the, the game in Dhaka was it was a wet outfield you know we probably shouldn't have started the, the test match that uh, helicopters trying to drive the outfield rock hard pitch and for somebody who has got a bit of a sort of stiff back and a suspect back it, it was a lot of toll on it so I missed the, the Chittagong game missed the one days had to go home there was a lot of media people writing me off and saying that I didn't want to tour wasn't there was a couple of teammates I do remember you know were were sort of talked about that maybe were in the press saying that uh, my heart was not in touring and my heart was not in playing for England um, all this was written while the boys were in Sri Lanka let's go back to the West Indies what happened in that first test in Sabina Park where I think you established yourself um, as you know as what we're going to talk about in the mm. course of the rest of this programme um, people talk about the decline in West Indies bowling you know the fast bowling I understand that but if you look at the team you were playing against in in Jamaica you couldn't argue that their batting had declined much. The team that you played against included Brian Lara, Chris Gale, and Shivnarine Chanderpaul. Arguably, they're different ways. Three of the greatest batsmen the West Indies have ever produced. Um, and yet, as you know, um, you, I mean, you took seven wickets uh, in that second innings for 12 runs. What do you remember about, about that? Well, what I remember about that series is we, we went into the series, yeah, working really really hard Michael Vaughan had the team the fit there was a fitness a new fitness sort of drive to work hard and we, we had to be fit and strong and to, to sort of take on which was you know the heat the conditions as well as a very very you know you made the names you mentioned a good good West Indies side we go into that first test match playing some half decent cricket but maybe he's not a side with massive masses of confidence um, and then you know we got into a position where we were, you know, we were slightly, slightly in front when it come to, you know, the end of the the, the sort of first innings. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the wicket, I felt the wicket in the first innings didn't suit me because it bounced too much. I literally had to bowl. Weird. It is, yeah, it was. And it, it was literally too bouncy for, for somebody like myself because even, even you know, I had to bowl really, really full yeah. to get it to be to be challenging. And that sometimes is, is hard for a fast bowler, especially a tall one, because he doesn't bowl into the pitch, he floats it, and yeah. they're obviously easier to hit. So... I felt as though the wicket calmed down a little bit in the second innings. Um, and when you have these spells and, you know, we, we're sitting here and we're just sitting in England win the Ashes and Stuart Broad getting eight for eight for at Trent Bridge, you, you need an element of luck. You need catches to, to be took. Um, Chris Gale was taken by Graham Thorpe, but third slip, you know, 
And yeah, you know, Thorpey, if there was a good gust of wind at the same time Thorpey's feet came off the floor, <laughs> he would end up he would end up in the the sort of in the carob the, the carob stand about you know ten rows back on the uh, on the on the bank and uh, with all the Barmy army because it just took him off his feet. Ch- Chanderpool, you mentioned Chanderpool, yeah. he's he blocked one onto his back pad, hit his foot and rolled onto the stump. So you need, a bit of luck, these, yeah. you need that little bit of luck, but uh, during that that spell. It's probably the only time in my career where you feel, you know what, every time I let go of this ball, I look like getting a wicket or I'm going to get a wicket. And Michael Vaughan, you know, that everybody goes on about this field that Michael Vaughan set. And I've talked about it ages and then you talk about it in the after dinner and stuff like that. Michael Vaughan was a great captain for the simple fact is he couldn't catch. He had the worst pair of hands ever in the game of cricket for a top six batsman that's why he was good because he fielded mid on and mid off and if you watch him during that we had eight seven or eight slips and the Michael umbrella. Vaughan, the yeah. umbrella and yeah. Michael Vaughan is standing behind Simon Jones and Matthew Hoggard two fast bowlers and Vaughan is more or less standing behind them as to say I don't want this ball to come to me because I'm not going to catch it but it just got us off to a great start and a start that continued all the way through well, to 2005 on. Steve, absolutely. This is the sign of, A, the England team starting to puff itself up as it be improved, but also I think that spell at Sabina Park um, marks your arrival as a truly great world-class bowler. Just to remind people, after that, you went on and England won two more tests in the West Indies against New Zealand. There was a three-test series here in the summer. You took uh, eight wickets at Lords, seven at Headingley, six in the third Tessa Trent Bridge then the West Indies came over here again and two things happened you do very very well against them as well and you become number one in the world bowling rankings but I think even more of an indication was that no less a man than Brian Lara um, perhaps uh, getting a little bit fed up with getting beaten by England in an interview said England they've got Steve Harmison but no plan B that was an incredible compliment yeah, well, that's obviously nice to hear from you know from somebody like you know one of the world's world's greatest, um, and it is nice. And but I think we did have a plan B. I thought we had a fantastic bowling unit. Yeah, yourself, all of us. Yeah, Jones, Flintoff, Hoggard. Yep. Giles, Giles was so key to us as well. Yeah, Anderson was Anderson just was coming into just the coming team, into yeah. the team. So yeah, we had a we had a fantastic unit there that on any given day on any given surface we could take anybody on the world on, and we proved that. And you know. We talk about momentum, the momentum that give us. You know, we won seven test matches that summer. In 2004, Steve, you took 67 wickets in 13 games at an average of 23. I mean, um, did you feel like, when, when you became uh, in the rankings the world's number one bowler, did you feel like the best bowler in the world? Um, I, felt as though I, I felt as though as a team, as a unit, we were the best team in the world at the time. And I think sometimes when you are, when you have, well, you have a team like that. You need figureheads that are, are playing very, very well. I think if you fast forward a few years later, we were doing well, but we weren't doing ourselves as justice. And Kevin Peterson was the best player in the world at the time. And he was doing that for England. So I felt as though I was leading a good attack um, but like I said before it's not a one man team it's not a one man bowling attack you know if, if one man's looking good at one end he needs pressure at the other end and I think that's the most important thing for any team and any lesson to any team coming up if you want to build you've got to make sure that if you've got somebody who is on a crest of a wave you've got to make sure you back that person up and I think that's what happened with England at that time you know Flintoff Jones Hoggard you know Giles especially as well you know we, have, we go on about 
a four-man attack. It wasn't. It was a five-man attack. Steve, we're going to talk about 2005 now. Um, it's one of those weird things where um, everybody knows the script. Everyone has talked about it a million times, and yet there's always something new and fascinating to find out about it. Um, I'll just say that uh, you've been to South Africa prior to that. Now, you personally hadn't done particularly well, but the, the big battle was yet to come, and that was this Ashes series in 2005. We now look back on the England team. I just want to set this up by saying, you know, the names in the England team, uh, yourself, Vaughan, um, Anderson was coming in through, as you say, but Flintoff, Giles, uh, Matthew Hoggard, Peterson, Strauss, Trescothic, they have become synonymous with the legendary, the, what went on that summer. But I'm just looking at the Australian squad just to remind people that the squad of players that England beat in this fantastic test series, which could argue re-cemented the place of test cricket in the nation, included Ricky Ponting, Adam Gilchrist, Michael Clark, Jason Gillespie, Matthew Hayden, Justin Langer, Brett Lee, Glenn McGrath, Shane Warne, and others. Um, I mean, when you lost that first test, uh, Steve, uh, what was the feeling in the camp? Because this was the greatest cricket team arguably along with the West Indian team of the 80s that God ever put shoes on yeah for me I think this it was the best team I've in my lifetime I thought um, they are you know they were a fantastic cricket team to, to watch and to, to play against um, and when you when you go into the summer you know we come off the back of South Africa where we won first team to win in South Africa after apartheid going back to the, the sort of summer we've talked about and then we come into the one days you know we set a little bit of a benchmark down in the one days that we we were not going to roll over we were going to stand there and go, compete with them and give them you know give them as much as they were giving us as well as they've given every other cricket team all around the world for the last 12 15 years um, and we were going to we were going to sort of stand up to them um, what we didn't do is we didn't stand up to them probably as a batting unit at Lords, um, as a bowling unit, and that's what made me leave Lords thinking um, that we could we could beat these. We yeah. can get. 20 you did wickets. well yourself. I think you got eight wickets at Lords, didn't you? Yeah, that was my best test of the summer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I felt as though, but I felt not just because of that. I felt this group of five bowlers. We can get 20 wickets. The problem is, can we get 20 wickets? Yeah, cheaper than what they're going to get 20 wickets with. They're going to get them. Yeah, Lee, Brett Lee bowled like a champion all all that summer. Brett, yeah, Brett was a fantastic competitor, and as well with the ball, as well with the bat, as well as Shane Warne did. Yeah, yeah. Glenn McGrath was the same. Um, and yeah, they were probably let down a little bit by their their sort of fourth and fifth bowler. Yeah, Jason Gillespie um, struggled a little bit as well. Did yeah, Sean Tate and Michael Kasprovich. And I think that's where we had maybe the one up on them when it comes to bowling attacks. But it was the batting that was going to win us the, the, the series because the the batting had to score at a certain run rate to really sort of put us in a game winning position for our bowlers to take 20 wickets and Steve, that's Steve, what happened at Edgebaston McGrath famously stood on a cricket ball twisted his ankle um, the series has gone down as being one of tremendous sportsmanship the image of Flintoff stood over the, 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 the vanquished Lee is burnt into the national consciousness but it wasn't all um, sporting was it I read somewhere that um, when when you heard that Lee had twisted his ankle, um, you, you you were kind of delighted. Oh, we were delighted. <laughs> I tell you what, uh, when we have sport professional sportsmen do say, yeah, you don't wish 
yeah, injury on on a fellow professional, and you don't, not a serious one, but no. a little twist of an ankle and take him out for say six weeks. That'd be ideal, wouldn't it? Well, five days was five days <laughs> was going to be a bonus for us because what he did to us at Lords was ridiculous. Yeah, you know, I, I got was I got five for I got five for on the first morning of of um, of Lords, and everything was cock a hoop in my mind. Mm-hmm. I was I was on cloud nine. Yeah, come by the end of that day, I think. I think Glenn had got five for five for six, five for seven, and made my five for look like five for hundred. Yeah, which was yeah. But to see him to see him go down and then, but I think I think th- th- that was that was a big point, um, as nearly as big a point if not. Yeah, Ryan Harris being off this series, 2015 series. Yeah, that was as you know a bigger turning point um, as well. But when Ricky decided that he was going to bat for uh, bowl first on that edge baston pitch, I think that was the turning point in the whole series. Series. The ninth over, especially when Shane Warne was was having his, you know, was shaking his head. You know. Very public display of dissent, wasn't it? I thought his head was going to fall off at one point. <laughs> he was shaking it that much and he was having a go. And then you know, Marcus Driscothic showed what any good, you know, you know, good world-class player will do in that situation. The odd risk and reward bit, but... If that goes up straight up in the air and he gets caught, then obviously Australia are you know their their decision to bowl first is you know goes with them. Marcus just got they hit hit Shane Warne's second ball of the over at the ground, and all of a sudden their head started shaking a bit more. You know their heads went down a little bit in the Australian room, and all of a sudden England got the momentum and the ascendancy going forward and just probably eased Lords out of their mind a little bit. I mean, it is, of course, famously um, the closest Ashes Test match ever. Um, we all know that uh, England should have been home and hosed, but Australia put up tremendous resistance. Oh, Steve, Steve, you must have given up hope by then. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say given up hope, but we were. <laughs> it, was, it was dwindling very, very fast. Two um, runs, Guy. It was, it was, yeah. Um, we thought we had had a chance... Our chance had gone when Simon dropped that catch at third man. We all thought that there was one more chance in the game when you were sort of 30, 40 in it. There was still this chance because of you only need one wicket. But then when Simon dropped the catch with 15 to go, you're thinking, well, it's it's an inside edge, it's a poor ball down leg side, or it's a clip through mid wicket, and all of a sudden they're one hit away from being there. And then right at the very end, that big full booming full toss um, to, to Brett Lee, um, I knew the man was out there. We wanted every ball possible to to sort of get Michael Kasparovich on strike. But Brettley, you know, we got when we got when we got you know Michael out and the, the famous photo of Andrew, you know, shaking Brettley's hand, and that was justified. That photo goes all around the world because Brettley during that during that hour and a half, we me and Andrew Flintoff hit Brettley in so many parts of his body. I have never seen. I, I couldn't believe he's like a voodoo doll. It, he literally got hit everywhere and he still kept going and he kept going and he kept going. So him and Shane Warne were, you know, throughout that series, there were, there were you know, there were massive players for Australia, but there were the, the sort of courageousness that they showed in that hour and a half to, to, to fight for their country was ridiculous, but it was great to get over the line. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We all know then that uh, Australia with another rearguard action saved the third test. England win the fourth test. There's that draw, that kind of weird ending at the in the fifth test. And... An explosion of national joy, Steve, that I don't think I've seen. Um, I was too young to remember what happened after the World Cup in 1966. So an explosion of national joy. What did you make of every politician, every newspaper, every television set, everybody getting in on the act? I mean, it was an incredible aftermath to the, to the reclamation of the ashes. I thought it was a joke, to be honest. I thought it was, an, I thought it was a bit of a farce, um, if, I'm, if I'm brutally honest, in a way that my, my local cricket club had, what, 50, 60 kids before um, that series started. You know, by the time the end of the series, we were looking at 250, 300 kids on a, on a Saturday morning, Friday night, Sunday morning. Um, and I thought, you know, that series captivated the whole country. Um, I like a lot like when Johnny Wilkinson kicked that ball over the post in Australia in 2003. I thought, you know, the whole country became rugby for that short period. And I think English fans... And, yeah, and the working class fans and the, the people that and the man in the street related to us because we were, you know, we were human beings. We were not robots. We were not rattling out cliches after everything I'd, I'd, I'd done. I thought we were, I thought we'd give as good as we, you know, as give, as, give as good as we got. That bus trip, I do remember being in the dressing room after, after the, the, um, after the test match, uh, England or players, Australia, you wouldn't have known who had. Well, you would have known who had won the series, but you know there was there was two sets of players in in different parts of dressing rooms, whether it was the English dressing room or the Australian dressing room, really talking about what a great series it was, and you know we got a lot in common. We had a, a long, hard summer going toe to toe with each other, and then we got ushered into a room about sort of nine, ten o'clock at night. It had been muted that there was going to be a bus trip, and we got told that we were going on a bus trip tomorrow morning. Yeah, what did you, tell tell me about that bus trip? Tell me uh, first of all how how drunk or sober were you on the bus? I was, you know, we were ticking. Um, to be honest, Danny, I thought it was. I thought that I I remember saying in that meeting, yeah, what are we doing this for? 
Yeah. You know, like, I couldn't believe what we're doing it for. I said, well, if we got, if we have to go on it, you've got, to, you've got to take us as we are. Because I am not gonna, I'm not going hard against the best team probably ever to play the game of cricket. Win it and so hard for seven and a half weeks, giving up everything I've given up and it's not a sacrifice because I want I want to try and be the best person I possibly can be but I've now you know we've we've done so many things and we've you know we've had so many sort of ups and downs over the last seven weeks I want to celebrate this and I want to celebrate it in my way and in my fashion and if they want us to be sort of clean shaven, suited and booted and bright eyed, bushy tailed. <laughs> They've got to lock us in a hotel room, for, lock us in a hotel for two days and let us get us out of our system and then come back. But they said, no, you got to go to, you got to go tomorrow. Well, unfortunately, you're going to have to take us as we are. And I think as we are, that, I think that appealed to the nation more. Yeah, but I must say, though, compared to the condition that, that Andrew Flintoff and Kevin Peterson looked to be in, you did all right, Steve. Yeah, well, I was. I'm a bit, I was a bit more shrewd. I, I, to be honest, Danny, well, for me, I had celebrated. I literally, I, I think, I didn't, I didn't go to sleep that night. Good I man. I couldn't. I couldn't. I left. I left the. Uh, I left the bar at about twenty to eight in the morning. I think it was, and it was only because I was just nodding off, and my trainers went out the window on about third floor bar, <laughs> and I thought the stair Andrew Flintoff was in and the mood he was in, I was probably going to follow. I decided that I was going to go upstairs and get myself ready. Um, it was it was brilliant, and you know there was nobody really went to sleep. I think I remember going through reception. Marcus just got like sitting in reception, just just sitting there watching the world go by, and you know nobody could sleep. It was such a it was such a unbelievable atmosphere. The way it went the way it went on. I didn't leave the hotel. Me and Andrew didn't leave the hotel. Most of the other lads went out for a, for a drink for a short drink somewhere. But I, I wanted to celebrate in in the hotel, and I was I was I had I was around friends and family, and then the bus trip. I'd celebrated all night. To be fair, I'd, I'd give it everything I'd got all night. I wouldn't say it would be out of my system because I did it for a, a mm-hmm. little bit longer. But I sat on the bus at the back of the bus, out the way a little bit. Um, and I had, uh, I've got four children now, but I had two children at the time, Emily and Abby, and my wife Haley. We sat on the we sat on the back of the bus, the four of us. And I thought, I thought I've celebrated with my teammates all night, all since the game's finished and sat with them all night. And this is a one-off occasion where we're going to drive through the centre of London and there's so many people there. I didn't think there'd be anybody there. And I thought, I'm doing this with my family because they're the ones that have put up with, you know, some, it wasn't, it's not just for seven weeks and my wife will say she's put up with my moves for the last 16 years. But uh-huh. <laughs> I wanted to celebrate with my family because they had gone through it as well. It wasn't just 12 players that won that Ashes. It was a management team. It was the support staff. And it was every single wife, girlfriend and children that went through the whole thing. And for me, I wanted to celebrate that bus trip with my family because my kids wouldn't, you know, even at the end, at the end, you know, we got off the, the bus in Trafalgar Square. Abby's two-year-old and she looked down, Dad, what's all these people doing here? And I, you know, I remember saying to her, look, you're... You, when you get a bit older, you'll realise what what actually happened. And yeah, we'll, as we get older, and we'll get sort of grandparents, and yeah, we can talk about yeah, this series getting better and better when we're standing in the in the corner mm-hmm. of the bar. Um, yeah, you you will remember the series getting better and better. But I was privileged to play in with a uh, fa- with a fantastic team against a fantastic team. And like you said before, the margin of the win, we won two one by two wickets and two runs. It was an amazing summer for England, and I think that transformed the whole country into cricket fans. Absolutely, Stephen. Well said and brilliantly uh, said. If I don't, if you don't mind me saying, and congratulations on a double there. Really, the most famous Test series uh, since Bodyline, perhaps uh, really in the whole modern history of cricket.
and the most famous sporting celebration um, that anyone can remember either. We should we should talk about your love of Newcastle United, which not only involves watching the team play and supporting the team, but as you hinted at earlier on the show, you've actually been quite involved with the club as well, both playing for the junior teams when you were younger and training with them later on. Huh? Tell us about your love of Newcastle United. Well, yeah, Newcastle is a, you know, they all say, you know, coming up here, there's a goldfish bowl that they, they do live in, whether it's Newcastle, Sunderland, you know, Middlesbrough, it is a, the North East is a tight knit community where you do, you know, do tend to support, you know, the, the club closest to you and, you know, we, you know, we, we've always, I've always supported Newcastle. Um, anybody that was half decent as a junior went through the School of Excellence. Um, very few, you know, a lot chosen, very few sort of went into the next level. But, you know, for me, I love watching Newcastle. You know, first, I, I remember one of my first recollections of, of being at a game, you know, John Anderson, um, the famous right fullback for, for, for Newcastle scoring against Millwall and uh, from about 30 yards. You know, John, not, he'll, he'll love me for saying this. It was a ridiculous goal that he, uh, he it was like it looked as though it was just a hit and hope went straight in the top corner and I think that was in the sort of early to mid 80s um, I do remember one game going and Harry Redknapp's Bournemouth and the game getting called off at half time because of because of Foggett's and James in the mm. FA Cup um, so that was many moons ago and then obviously living through the the Keegan era and then beyond but yeah you know, for me the club when I was at my time of not time of need but I was in a little bit of wilderness when it comes to to sort of the the mental side and the the body side of being a professional sportsman and there was a certain gentleman that did help me you know Paul Winsper you know will always be indebted in my career and in my life because of I met him as a as a 17 year old and he helped me through that back injury in my early career but he also you know, I spoke to Sir Bobby Robson and got me to be able to come in to train with Newcastle and there were five magical years going in with probably five or six different managers but first and foremost Sir Bobby Robson when I went into the training for the first time you know, we went into the gym and he looked at me and he, he pointed out um, Alan Shearer you know, Gary Speed Shea Given uh, Steve Harper James Milner and he said if you look at look at what these do and you see why these lads are true professionals top top performers at both domestic and international football and you follow them you know, you'll have a good career in international sport he did point at a few others and say if you follow them and I'll not mention their names but if you follow them I'll kick your backside and oh, you'll be out the door as quick as you come in oh Newcastle always had plenty of those Steve <laughs> I wouldn't had, worry yeah, about they, that they had a few but Sir Bobby was absolutely fantastic I mean why, what is it about Sir Bobby Robson I mean uh, everybody we talked about Nelson Mandela I'm not making a comparison but we talked about how once you've been in his presence nobody ever comes away uh, nobody ever comes away and says oh he's alright they always seem to be mesmerised by him Exactly, mesmerised is the right word. He was an unbelievably infectious person. He was always thinking. I remember. I remember on a. It was actually. Howard didn't. Howard didn't hurt him more than it actually did. And you don't want to laugh. And you know, telling stories from within. I always prided myself on not taking anything out of that change rooms because it was a sanctuary of a of a the four walls inside the training ground. And I wanted to prove that, you know, I wasn't going to go away and tell tales or anything like that. Right. But there was there's one, this one afternoon where I was sitting on a bike next to John Carver and Sir Bobby Robson's watching 
as he's walking on the treadmill and he's the treadmill's right next because the gym was really tight at that time and it was right next to a, a weights machine which the the bench press machine and so Bobby's watching this young game out the window on the outside and he's walking on the treadmill and we're just chewing the fat talking all of a sudden so Bobby Robson stopped while he's on a treadmill and he Obviously, the treadmill didn't stop, and he hit the floor, and his head nearly hit the bench press bar. And he just picked himself up, looked at me and John on the bike, and he looked at him, and he went, right, I want a word with him after. And somebody in the under-19 game had made a mistake. And so Bobby had seen it, and obviously he had just completely stopped, not realising he was on the treadmill. He hit the floor, and he looked at us, and for the next 15 minutes, myself and John Carver, our, our lips are How could you that stop much. yourself from laughing? You can't, you can't laugh at Sir Bobby Robson. And <laughs> we didn't want to laugh, and we didn't, and we didn't, and we, we let out this big gasp when he left the room. But that was Sir Bobby all over. He was watching. He was manager of Newcastle United, former manager of England, and he's watching a youth game out the window, and somebody had done something that he didn't like. And it... And he was—he he wanted to put. He wanted it stopped to help him that. literally in his tracks. It did stop him literally in his tracks. But he, the thing for me, he wanted to help another human being be better in their young career. And that for me, Bobby would have been in his late 60s, 70s at the time. That for me tells every little story about Sir Bobby Robson as a person. He's a fantastic man. Steve, how do you how do you keep up the passion for Newcastle United? I'm going to say this, a nice sport team who wins one a trophy every 10 years these days, but at least they do. How do you how do you keep up the passion for a team that, that, that always disappoints? Uh, I'm not the only one. If you look at 52,000 every week or between 47 and 52,000 every week that spells tells you what this this black and white shirt means to the area I think what the I don't think the people you know they support the club and the support you know what goes on but it's the shirt that people support and I think it's the club that people support not who's in charge of the club who's the manager or how the team are playing you know we got relegated to the championship and we had 39 40, between 39 and 40,000 people every single week when we that tells you that you know the, the, the area is passionate about Newcastle and I've always said that you know Love of my hair to Mike Ashley, whether it's you, you're on the pro Ashley side or the negative Ashley side. The, the Newcastle United Football Club's got a strong base, a strong footing. We've spent some money in this in this um, in this window, and at this minute in time, yeah, signs were good at the weekend. I thought, yeah, there's the odd, yeah, the odd place where we probably could maybe strengthen a bit more. There's yeah, there's players that have played at the weekend who haven't played a great deal of football. So I'm sure once they start playing a little bit more and the cohesion gets better, then I think we've signed some decent players. So hopefully we can advance up. Steve. We should be. We should be like every other supporter thinks their team should be in the top six, top eight. It doesn't happen, but we've got to have a better year than what we've been having because the last four or five years, I think, has really tested the patience of the hardest of Newcastle United fans. Steve, let me ask you one other question. I don't mean metaphorically. I don't mean you know. I mean physically. Have you ever dreamed of playing in a Newcastle kit? Oh yeah, I think. I think everybody around the new... You've physically uh, had dreams that you're playing you for have. Newcastle, yeah? Of course you have. Yeah, of course you have. Everybody's had the dream. If you are if you support any team, especially if you're from that area, you've you've, uh, you've always worn it. You've, you've always had one of the replica, replica shirts at some point in your lifetime. And you've always wanted to be the, the sort of Alan Shearer because of what Alan Shearer means to Newcastle. Jackie Milburn, what he meant to Newcastle growing up in the area and wearing that special, special shirt. Yeah, like I said before, there's yeah, 
few few you know there's there's few given that privilege um and i think sometimes you know that privilege is a little bit you know there's a little bit you know not realizing when that person's in that that position i don't think they realize what it means to the outside world or the outside area of the northeast i think the ones that do are very very successful in the northeast steve i keep calling you um england fast bowler but of course you've had a long career in county cricket not always playing for the county because of your england commitments um but i know you loved your time at Durham, and it was interesting because when you joined them, they were the team who were finishing bottom of the championship. By the time you leave them, they're winning regular championships. Yeah, it was yeah when we first joined, and I, I say we, you know, the people that sort of still there and grew up with and go through, we are the history, or we were the history of, of Durham County Cricket Club. 1992 was the first team which was built upon... Um, imports. Yeah, imports. Um uh, maybe it's maybe it's a wrong. Is it the right word or no. wrong word in in sort of has been sort of thing where they, they were finished when they actually came to Durham? Uh, maybe he's being a bit critical on on some people there, but I think there were there were there were people that were it was a, a manufactured built side which I'm not sure it worked really. Um, and then the once they had sort of gone and fallen by the wayside, we became a very very young side, a very very young side. Um, and I'm looking at you know, the players that are maybe other people that are still there. The likes of myself, Paul Collingwood, Neil Killeen, who were there from very, very young age. We are the sort of history, or we were the history of that club. So to see it transform and evolve throughout that, as well as going off to play for England and coming back, if every chance I possibly could, I wanted to play for my county because I love playing for Durham. It was like playing with my mates. It's like playing in the... It was like playing, yeah, club cricket. It was like being, well, play for England. I'm, I'm chosen to go and play and represent with... Yeah, with the best in the country. But when I come back to Durham, I actually put more pressure on myself to do well because I actually wanted my mates to do well. I wanted, I was, I was so, it was so important. I think we got to the semi-final of the Friends Provident, and I wasn't sure if I was going to be fit or not. And I actually played, and I wanted to play because the way I looked at it, and it was not in a selfish way or anything like that. It was, I'm fortunate to play cricket for England at Lords, but twice three times a year yeah. in front of 30,000 people I want to do my very very best for my teammates at Durham to maybe get their only time to play at Lords and that was something that drove me on it's every 2007 time. yeah 2007 and I actually got injured two weeks before the actual final um, but it did not hamper me one bit on me on that in that balcony in that dressing room because I wanted to see my mates play who maybe you know they've been back since which is great but at that time it might only been their first and their one and only time to get on that big stage and I wanted to try my hardest to get them there and we can see the development of the club both uh, uh, in the the county championship and in turning out England players particularly bowlers and the reward all comes Steve 2007 as you say you win the Friends Provident in your second um, in the championship and 2008 and 2009 you win and retain the championship I mean how big a part um, of your cricket in career has that played? Well, I've always said the 2008 Championship side that 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 winning that winning feeling of that is the best, uh, arguably the best I've ever felt in sport. For the simple fact is, yes, I won the Ashes. Yes, I got to number one bowler in the world. Yes, done many things on the internationals team. But when I first, when I first played at Durham, you know, me and Paul Collingwood first played for Durham. At the Riverside, the we've got changing the scoreboard. We were actually getting changed in the scoreboard because the the 
the the main changing facilities, the main pavilion, wasn't quite built. So the only thing that really that was built at the time of that ground was the scoreboard. And you see it now, it's a magnificent international stadium, like you alluded to before, the floodlights, what it's had. It's fantastic. So you can see where we've come from with this club. Coming in and, you know, we went into the game at, at Canterbury, knowing that, the, the, the championship was in Notts' hand. We came on the blind side a little bit. Made a fantastic run near the end of the season. Um, I do remember. I remember the last day. You know, I remember sitting in casually at on the day before me and the physio sitting in casually the day before because um, I got hit on the wrist. I broke my wrist the day before in the um, Garrett Jones hit me. And I was feeling that gully, and I remember sitting in the dressing room the next morning. Um, when the game started and there was so much tension between the coaches and yeah, the lads who weren't playing because we were on the crest of something. Things weren't going well, we weren't getting wickets. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. I had to be on the field. So I, you know, I get ready, go, we go on the field. We win the game. Callum Thorpe got six or seven wickets, I think it was. It was fantastic. I managed to take the last two or three. And we came off the field not knowing because the game against Notts and Hampshire was still going on. So we get on the bus as potentially runners up because knots are still a, still you know, still favourites. And then we get to the Dartford Tunnel knowing that you know, we are going to be champions at some point. And we're going through the Dartford Tunnel as the as the as we go through, we lost signal on the bus. Oh. and the ball's gone up in the air. So we go in the Dartford Tunnel as not champions and we come out the Dartford Tunnel as champions. And from the Dartford Tunnel to the Riverside at Chesty Street. If you ever want to have a, a party and like mm. Trafalgar Square was on the bus and it was great. It was a great bus ride. We had five and a half hours, six hours. Lovely. And you, when you talk about celebrating with your team, that's the best place ever to celebrate because you can't go anywhere. There's nowhere really to go. You've got 52 seats on a bus and you've got 15 lads who have just worked tirelessly for six months to win something. They've won it. We've got five and a half hours to get home. And boy, was that five and a half hours special. It was fantastic. But I think for winning it, the special thing for me for winning it was there was a lot of a lot of stuff going on the year before. We won a trophy. Jeff Cook you know, did magnificent things for Durham Durham Cricket Club. This that ground at Chester Street should be named after Jeff Cook. Once the sponsorship deals stop, stop yeah. because of what he's done for he yeah, you know, he nearly gave his life for that club. And that is something that I think has to be recognised. Um, not only for young players but for, for us, you know, the older ones as well, during that time. Such a relaxed atmosphere. But it all of a sudden put us on the market to say, right, you know, we are gonna be a force in this country. At, at, at Red Bull senior senior level cricket for time to come and it's proved that as well absolutely it has absolutely um, and congratulations on those two championship wins let's talk about then back in your England career I want to go straight on to the 06-07 Ashes in Australia do we have to? no no <laughs> well you're right to say that but, but, yeah. it, but it wouldn't be fair because there was a remarkable series in between against Pakistan where in one test, you took, um, let me get this right, six for 19 in 13 overs, 11 for 76 in the whole game. And, of course, you watched one of the great farces in international cricket unfold when the fourth test was eventually called off. Um, the, first, the umpires accused the Pakistanis of ball tampering. Then the Pakistanis said, never mind, we'll play on. But they couldn't get the, the team and the, and, the, and the umpires on the pitch at, at the same time over a period of a day. And eventually the game fizzled out. But... Uh, 
Um, I, I, I don't really know whether you've got any views on... Let me ask you, all right, I'll ask you a straightforward question. Um, you you bowled the ball for speed and bounce. Uh, how much how much do you think there was actual ball tampering in, in the game of cricket? How much do you think it still goes on? Um, I, yeah, I think there's a little bit of... What is ball tampering? You know, if somebody gets a hold of the ball and starts ragging it along the concrete floor or off the studs or, you know, uses uses something on it the yeah, same, yeah that is ball tampering yeah if if you've got you know if you've got somebody that you know shines the ball a certain way and can make and looks after it and protects it that's not ball tampering you know that's good you know that's you know good use of you know good use of well, the the ball and making sure it's in the pristine condition to 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 sort of you know utilize the skills of your of your bowlers mm-hmm. um i think there was a bit going on if I'm honest, yeah. During that time, um, there was one of our players looking through binoculars at what was happening on the field, um, and there was a little bit, there was a little bit going on. But I, I, I don't think it was, I don't think it was to to that much of extent where it was. I think it was where it was going to be not dangerous for the game, but it was going to be helping the you know, one side on the other. I thought it got nipped in the bud very, very quickly by yeah. the umpire, who then it became a bit, bit farcical and it became a little bit of a it became a little bit of a stubborn battle between an Australian umpire and a nation which who, you know, when things weren't going right, they they dug the heels in in Pakistan, whether mm-hmm. it was Inzaman or the rest of the players, and it was two very, very strong units going going hard at each other. And yeah, from that point of view, we were never going back on the field because never, neither one was going to give an inch. Um, hilarious, I must admit. You know, from from an England point, why well, not hilarious? And that's probably the wrong word, but it was you know it was farcical. Quite, it was farcical the, uh, is probably yeah. the better word. Um, I do remember on that that afternoon um you know we talk about the, the the old trafford test match before that but on that afternoon when they said right we're going to go back to the hotel we're going to have a meeting and we're going to clear this whole thing up and i thought well traffic's going to be bad i don't fancy driving tomorrow afternoon during you know rush hour we're going to make a decision tonight and i thought well i'm just going to sit on the m1 up by Watford and thinking if it calls it off at 10 o'clock I could be home first by you know, by early hours in the morning up in, in the Newcastle right and I just thought I got to Watford and I thought the longer it was going on and there was no judgement I can keep going and I remember Richard Bevan because you know, I was good friends with Richard at the yeah. time I says Bevo this is what I've done let me know as soon as you can and he um, he rang me at 10 o'clock and he said where are you I said Scotch Corner <laughs> I says I'm got. I've gone home. I said if I have to drive back. I'll drive back. But yeah, obviously I have to drive back. It's, a, says, high oh, no, it's, it's a, high, a high risk strategy, Steve, because you, you it, could, yeah, you could be in York and he said come back. Well, yeah, well then I had a long drive, but I thought yeah. I'll back me. I back myself, and I I, I, I didn't for one minute. Right. I didn't for one minute think this battle of wills between two st- stubborn units is in the ICC of getting involved. As well as Pakistan. So, from that point of view, I thought, well, I'm going to get home in good time here. Steve, I have to say, that was the longest speech I've ever heard about uh, to answer to one question and all to try and avoid answering the next question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, England, uh, after the magnificence of 2005, England go down to Australia for the 2006 2007 Ashes series. 
I've written five words for the whole of this series. I've written that ball, that ball yeah. and Oz win 5-0. That's my entire notes. Um, England lost 5-0. They were humiliated, battered out of sight. I mean, it was an extraordinary turnaround. And it all started, Steve, with that ball which you bowled a second slip. Yeah, um, I'll come on to that ball in a minute because yes. I've got... You know, You've got I a could, theory, have you? I can, no, no, I didn't have a theory. I can, I can tell a story about it. But Good. The, um, the, the series... The series itself... We were beaten by the better team, obviously. We were in that series on nearly every test match apart from Brisbane. If you think we went to Adelaide and got 550, first innings, batting first. You should not get beat from that position. We were in Perth and bowled them out for 200. And if you do that first up, yeah, you should be. Yeah, you should be well in the game. We had them in um, in Melbourne. We had them 150 for five when Andy Simons came in and got runs, got 150. And then in, in Sydney, we had a little sniff in that game. Not much of a one, but a little sniff in that game. And we got beat there. We lost 5-0. It wasn't because that ball went to first slip, first ball. It wasn't because Andrew Flintoff was captain and not Andrew Strauss. The simple fact is, we weren't good enough. So when it comes down to that first ball and, and talk about it and, you know, the, the story I had, it was, there's some, you know, I'd, you know, I'd tell it in the sort of after-dinner type yeah. And it's in a in a way which is there's a there's a fun element and a and a serious element and yeah the serious is seriously serious um, and it's got nothing to do with cricket and the fun one is you know I always you know, I always sort of visualise what I was trying to do and you know everybody was talking about and that ball was supposed to be full I was supposed to be really full trying to sort of bring Justin Langer forward because everybody was talking about how aggressive we were at 2005 and trying to you know set, yeah. a, set a marker and, and, and really sort of be aggressive to them and I'd always say the, the full fun element was I tried to sort of pitch it up you know the ideal world when you visualise it you pitch it up he nicks it it goes to slip and you got a wicket first ball well yeah, you know, I was ninety-five percent of it spot on. Yeah, you just were. missed the middle bit out. But obviously, it's the most discussed ball since Warren's um, ball to Mike Gatting. Yeah. Did Did any of your England teammates laugh? Uh, well, uh, coming, you know, going, you know, carrying on with that. You look at uh, Matthew Hoggard. If you had seen Matthew Hoggard, Matthew Hoggard's running in from fine leg, with his hands in the air, j- jumping and screaming. He thinks it's a catch, does he? Well, he's <laughs> in his in his after dinner. He's how the. Because it got to second slip and nobody's nicked it, and <laughs> it must it, it must be out. Andrew Flintoff catches it. Andrew Flintoff catches it, throws it to throws it to Gully, and instinctively just shouts, claps his hands and shouts, "Well bowled, Harmy!" Just to sort of because that was instinct and naturally we think to do, and it was thrown back. Um, the the that's all the the sort of yeah joking yeah, side yeah. and the, the fun side of it, and this is what yeah it happened. I don't dismiss it I don't not like talking about it because it's it, it's what a, it's what it, it Steve, is it's, it is what it is it's and the microscope of, of international sport if you'd have bowled that ball third ball of the over no one would have ever thought about it again listen well, thank Mitchell, you Mitchell on. Johnson Mitchell Johnson and I, I, I want to carry this story on because it is this, this is serious this part of it and what it puts sport in perspective and Mitchell Johnson bowled one in this summer and it was in the middle of the series and nobody's really you know, really spoke about it but this is why I want to carry this on and I, I always tell this and I'll never forget that and nobody ever forgets it 
Um, but this is where, where it gets serious because people always ask me, did it affect you? And I would say it affected me for about six and a half hours. And really, why it affected me for six and a half hours? You mentioned my children and we went back at the night time and I went back and walked through the hotel room door and the kids aren't bothered whether dad's just bowled the first ball, the second slip, or he's getting five for you know, dad's back and we're going to do some you know, crayons or we're going to go swimming or whatever. And I remember at the night time, right after that, time to go to bed and I'm lying on top of the bed watching the TV and I'm thinking well it's probably not a good idea to watch Australian TV because I'm going to see it again mm -hmm. so I'll watch I'll watch English you know I watch Sky News and I watched Sky News on that day on that very night and the reason why it didn't affect me after that is because it alarmed me I, I watched the I watched the, you know, the opening part of the show and there it is Ashes 2006 Steve Harmison that ball and I thought, right, fair enough. Mustn't be anything else going on in the world at the time. And then this is where it affects. It does not affect me anymore because the next, the next clip on the new reel was there were. It was one of the first two soldiers of Afghanistan was killed on that very day, and that was after the first ball. And that put life in perspective for me. I cuddled my children all night that night. Could not stop thinking about two two people fighting for the country, and I've getting I've getting headline news. When two people have died fighting for their country, I thought it was—I thought it was a joke, and yeah. I thought, yeah, you know, when it it put life in a perspective, it put cricket in perspective, and it put sport in perspective for me, and I think that's why I like telling that story in a, a fun way, but also in a serious element because this is a game, and it's not life or death, and unfortunately, that that moment there really, really inside really hurt me, and I went on and I thought I showed my character throughout that series because. You're right. 25 days. My on the first day, I was I, it was a poor day, and I had to play for the next 24 days in front of all them thousands of people in them grounds, and I tried to try my best for England. It wasn't good enough. We got beat five nil, but at least I tried to keep fronting up and fronting up. I didn't try and hide. I didn't run away, and I didn't want to be anything other than the best person Stephen Armisen could be for English cricket, and it wasn't good enough. But yeah, them that newsreel really, really hit home for me, and that's the serious part of that whole story. Steve, we talked about the disastrous ashes and that ball and all the rest. We talked about it at length, and we're going to come on in this section um, to the redemption that you got in the 2009 Ashes series. Before that, though, I think it would be unfair, after all we've talked about, in between those two things, it would be unfair to leave out the fact that uh, you played against South Africa in 2008. Never mind about the bowling and all the rest of it, but in one innings, you made 49 not out, your highest score. Um, and a pretty good score for somebody coming in, I suppose, at uh, 11. Um, did you enjoy batting, Steve? Um, yeah, I love batting, yeah. I've, I've, I've always worked to the theory that I was there for a good time and not for a long one. Um, <laughs> and I had, the, I had the sort of theory that if you have fast bowlers, were either going to bowl at your feet or your head and... You try and score off one and try and defend the other. Um, there was a few times against a few fast bowlers, Akhtar, Lee. Yeah, the, Show it back to, for yeah, God's sake. The, um, the, the bowling at the, the, the trying to score the, off the head bit was never, ever an option. So you try to hit the full ball. Um, but now that that day against Pakistan, you know, I mean Pakistan against Africa, it, yeah. was, uh, it, was, a, it was a good, great test match for me. You know, Kevin Peterson you know, got, got the captaincy. He reinstated me, brought me back into the team, managed to talk me out of playing one day cricket again which on hindsight probably wasn't the best thing for me it wasn't a great idea for me to do but yeah, you live and learn and on that day against South Africa I felt as though I bowled really well but then the batting was it was quite a, a, a fun element yeah I scored a few runs and then as as tail enders do when they get together it was a bit of a farcical end um, yeah 
uh, blocked the ball into the covers on 49 at the oval thinking uh, just a nice easy one and I've put it between two fielders and decided that I was going to set off for a run and look down the other end and realise Monty was bat up, <laughs> bat, bat up his backside and not really paying attention. He was probably wondering what was on the Emirates flight coming over at you know, four o'clock in the afternoon thinking he would love to be on it. So we ended up having to go back and then the next ball, um, I hit the ball straight to A.B. de Villiers who not only is A.B. one of the best batsmen in the world, best wicketkeepers in the world, He's probably one up there in the top three world fielders annoying, in the world. Annoying, isn't he? Yeah, it's, it is annoying, but <laughs> fantastic to watch it, everything he does. And um, Monty decides he's going to run. So I thought I had to I had to sort of go for it. And I think he threw the stumps down as me and Monty went past each other in the middle of the wicket. So not to be for 50, but 49 was, was the highest score. And I, I really did enjoy batting. I loved the challenge of whether it was facing Warren or Miro Lutheran to back up your partner at the other end. Yeah, I loved the challenge when somebody was going well and scoring runs. Yeah, there's two or three times I remember playing again at the Oval with against South Africa and Andrew Flintoff was at the other end and I think there was one game there was one game at Lords where me and Andrew put 103 on and I got one. It was brilliant. It was fantastic. Yeah, what better place to watch one of your big striking cricketers from 22 yards away just completely take apart the opposition bowling attack. So I did love batting, I yeah. must admit. Steve, well, um, thank you for that. And we'll, I've got one more batting record to talk about, and you know what I'm going to say next as well. Yeah. Um, but it, your, your story and the way things happened in 2005 and that ball, um, it, it seems like a, it, it's like something out of a boy, I, was, I wouldn't say a fairy tale, but it's like out of a boy's adventure book. And it comes to this amazing... Amazing climax in 2009. You're not in the England team for the first three tests of the Ashes series against Australia. Andrew Flintoff gets injured and you come back for the last two tests. And it is incredible, uh, given everything that's gone before you, that, well, you achieve two things. I'll do the minor one in just a second. But you win the final test. You are the person who takes out the last three, 9-10 jack of Australia's innings and win it. I mean, it's an amazing story. I should make the point, though, um, that during the fourth test, where you came in to replace Andrew Flintoff, you joined a very elite club of one great batsman, Mike Atherton, mm. and one poor batsman, Monty Panesar, with a 20 your 20th test duck, an English record. Well done, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. But but you weren't there to be batting, you were there to bowl, weren't you? Exactly. Um, talk to me about that final test where, um, with the series in the balance, um, you take out the last three Australians, and you could have, Steve, I mean, you've already got an amazing enough life, you could have ended the Ashes on a hat-trick. Yeah, that would have been an unbelievable, you know, like you say, the, the 2005, 2006, seven, and if I'd finished with a hat-trick, um, it was to be my last test. I probably knew before going into that, I, I probably knew it was going to be my last test. I wasn't somebody, I'd already retired from one-day cricket, um, so I'd retired and come back out of retirement. I didn't see the point of retiring when I finished. I'm uh, looking after the after the series. I had a good chat with Andy Flower, so I, I had an idea going into this test. It was probably going to be my last test. I couldn't do ten months of the year consistently playing so I wanted this to be a special occasion special moment yeah, I didn't bowl much in the first innings but then in the second innings I, I was desperate for that game to finish on that night and when yeah, Andrew, yeah, Andrew Strauss probably wasn't as confident throwing me the ball as he probably had been in years gone by but I think we, he realised that yeah, yeah, 
one last time, give it a real good go, everything you've got. And we managed to get the, the sort of three wickets. Wow. Stuart Broad was Stuart Broad was fantastic the day before, but he was just young. And I think, yeah, I think all the energy he had put into it, his legs were flagging a little bit. Swanee was bowling really well with Jimmy. And I managed to, I managed to pick up a few wickets near the end. And to finish the series with a win to finish the Ashes with a win I probably knew walking around the ground and that's why I probably did that lap of honour a little bit more more for the sake that, that my best mate was finishing as well that I wanted to sort of soak up the atmosphere because I probably had an idea that I wasn't going to play it anymore after that it was fantastic well listen we all know what happened um, you took the wicket of Peter Siddle and Stuart Clark with consecutive deliveries both caught after attempting to play on the leg side you had a unique opportunity Ben Hilfenhaus came in stopped the hat-trick but then you took him out as well to win the match to win the Ashes and to end on a super high note a wonderful test career incredible Steve and in funny, in a funny way um, you know the, you, your career if you think about uh, you know that ball and the 5 nil trossicking that you got out in Australia but the other things that have happened to you I don't I can't think of many more senior professional international cricketers who've had a more up and down time really really low points where the team wasn't doing well but also some fantastic things and that ending with the three wickets to take out Australia it's just typical the way it went for you yeah it was yeah and yeah you're spot on when it comes to the way the career was up and down and I work a lot with the PCA now and I work a lot with uh, you know some young cricketers in the game and the professionals in the game and I like I say to them and especially to the, the PCA there's not much I've not done in this game and that's not a big-headed thing because I look at, you know, I've had the, the utmost highs, but I've also been through the downright lows in not just in the cricketing terms, but from a, a, a personal life when it comes to sort of the mental side of the game mm-hmm. and suffering from, you know, suffering from depression and things like that from a, a young age and going through the homesickness and going through the, tribulals, you know, the trials and tribulations of touring and, you know, the, everywhere in the world that you've been to, you know, the good times and the bad times and, you know, we've been through the sort of terror attacks that we were in in India uh, I feel as though I can I can give a hell of a lot back to people that you know if they do want advice you know they, I've always been there I said to the PC I've always been there on the end of a phone to say if anybody is struggling I will always try and help people because the one thing I will always try to do in my commentating side of it whether I'm working on the radio or working on TV is to try and see the other side yeah it's easy to be critical and say that was poor that wasn't very good and why that wasn't very good but I'm, I'm very very tough to critic be critical with too many people for the simple fact is I know how tough this game is whether it's a domestic or uh, the international level it's a tough game we play Steve, you mentioned there the fact that you were diagnosed with um, depression very early in your life. And, of course, um, some of this reflected in, 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 in the anxiety about being away from home. Um, how much has it affected your career and your, and your life, the, 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 uh, the mental health issues that you've had? Um, the, the cricket was a release. Um, the, the the big fortunate the fortunate part of it and a lot of people will talk about the homesickness thing and I used to love I used to I used to love it when they said it was the homesickness thing and I'll go back to the somebody like Jonathan Trott Michael uh, Marcus Ruskothic you know Michael Yardy and people like that mm-hmm. I had a little bit of a barrier of the homesickness to fall back on because people used to think well if he's having a bad day it's just homesickness sure I'm fine with it that it was a shield wasn't it it yeah. was for the simple fact is you mentioned depression you're finished 
You mentioned depression. You leave it to or you you having a bad time and the word depression's mentioned instead of homesick and yeah and you, you don't carry on. Well we saw the what happened with Jonathan Trott, didn't exactly. we? Exactly. You know? yeah. You'd have thought after Marx's book that we'd have a more enlightened view of this stuff now, but I'm not sure we've moved on a great deal actually. I don't think we have. I think you are spot on. I don't think we have moved on a great deal. I think the PCA do Great things, Jason Ratcliffe. Yeah, the, the at the PC Players Cricket Association, he is for me. He's sport leader in what he does to help. Yeah, mental health issues in in cricket especially, um, and what they do is, is is first class. But for me, that that, that homesickness. Um, shield, like you say, was there, but my release was getting on the field. I could feel terrible going into a game. And, you know, there was one or two times I had a bad tour in South Africa in in two thousand and sort of four or five, and I remember I was like hyperventilating in Joburg. I couldn't get it, couldn't get the air in because I was struggling with anxiety and stuff like that. But going on the field just released me from anything because once I was concentrating on my job and concentrating on trying to be the best I possibly can be because I was quite strong-willed mentally that I wanted to be there. I didn't want to give up. I've never really given up on anything too much in my in my career. I, I always felt as though if there was a brick wall coming in front of me, I tried to go through it rather than you know, duck, duck round it. But that was something that you know, the, the homesickness element of it when people were accusing me of that did help me because if I mentioned you know, the, the mental health issues or depression issues or anxiety issues, I think as soon as you mention that and you have a bad game, I'm afraid your, your, your days but in international sports gone. I exactly hear what you're saying, Steve, but that can't be right, can it? It can't be right. No, it can't be right. People have got to be there to be helped. People have got to be there to be honest and, and open. And, you know, there is, there is ways and means. And, you know, I, I do remember, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm talking ill of, uh, Ill of this when, you know, Marcus was struggling because I spent a bit of time with Marcus before the, during that series of, of, of Australia. You know, after he had gone home in India, he came back in and went to Australia. And I remember sitting in Sydney and people were talking about getting his, his wife and his family to, to come over to come over early. And it was like, you know, once it's got you, it's got you. And you know, Marcus is struggling. I don't think no matter what, Haley, if Haley comes across and the kids come across, you know, being out there in in the heat of the battle, if it's affecting that, you know, his wife and kids aren't going to help him and it's just going to make him worse. And when it makes you worse, then you've got other things that come into it. Mental health is a, is a, is a, is a, is a strange fruit when it comes to, you know, if it escalates, yeah, you know, there's you know your life becomes a you know your life becomes an issue. And like I mentioned with a wide ball and talking about the soldiers and things like that, we're not playing life, and it is it is serious sport. But when your when your life comes into it and your, your, your the mental health this is as as far wears out anything that you can do with a battle ball. Steve, of course, since you retired from the game, you've been in the media on radio and television talking about cricket. But uh, now you've got another job, um, and well, you you were as good as your word. You said you football was your first love and following the footsteps I think of your father you've uh, become full-time well not for manager of Ashington AFC in the ninth tier of English football so I think this is um this is the highest level virtually where you've still got amateur players but it's a very serious level of the sport how did this come about um well it came about because uh, I care with the timing they say timing is everything um yeah February of last year 
uh, the manager who had done a fantastic job before at Ashton. Yeah, he he resigned. He gave up. Um, and Ashton wanted something. Yeah, something different, something new. Um, I've always been around non-league football. Anybody that knows me, this is not a surprise. Anybody that thought it was a publicity stunt, I didn't really care too much what anybody said on that front. Um, it was something that I really sort of, when I decided I was going to do it, was something I was going to do and enjoy. And I have done so far, even though the first two games of the season haven't gone well for us. But, you know, these things happen and you you, you, you sort of learn by you know, little things that are going. I've enjoyed it, you know, 100% and I I, I want to keep doing it and I've got some good people around me and you know it's a, it's a fantastic place to to be in the northeast because you know non-league football north of Leeds other than maybe six clubs is probably cut adrift from the rest of the country and that's a shame because there's some fantastic players and fantastic clubs in in this northeast area and it shows with this you know the the FA Cup runs that other teams have had and the FA Vars runs that teams have had in the last 10 years that it's a thriving area I mean, I know you had some pretty high-level advice um, building up to taking over at Ashington. Uh, hasn't John Carver been uh, giving you some advice? Well, I've known John for I've known John since I was ten year old. You know, I was at School of Excellence, and John was John was there. That was the first time I came across him. We talked about Sir Bobby Robson beforehand, and what a great man Sir Bobby is. And I mentioned John's name. John was Sir Bobby's assistant manager, and John was yeah more or less there till the very sort of end of Sir Bobby's lifetime. Um, and John was Newcastle manager last. Yeah, I spoke to John quite a bit, um, and he's yeah you know, he's a great man, one of the best coaches there is going around, and you know he was a bit unlucky at at the way the way things happened for him at Newcastle. And I felt heartily sorry for him because he was in a no-win situation, um, but it's something I've really enjoyed doing. Um, I've always enjoyed being a senior figure in a dressing room, and I've had to be at Durham, um, and I was at the latter part of you know the the England in the England setup where. When you're a senior player in a dressing room, you are like a manager, you are like a captain because you have to manage yourself first and foremost. But you've also got to help young people when they come into the team, you know, make sure that they're comfortable in the surroundings. Yeah, you know, they feel you know, comfortable, express themselves. And yeah, you know, they're not you're not like a when I first went at the England cricket team, there was a lot of senior players. There was like a selfishness mentality. Um, and I thought that had to change when it came to play on the side. When I first got into the playing team and then got became a senior player and made it comfortable for anybody to come in, now that's where I try and be that way in you know the management side. It's it's making you know, young players come in or you know players that have been there for a while, give them freedom to expression, comfortable that they can make mistakes, but also you know having a, a, a structure and a way that, that that helps us go forward and win football games. Um, in view of some of the discussion we had about the ups and downs you've had, not in this sport, as you say, you put those into perspective, but in your own mind, um, with some of the issues you've had, are you happy? And what do you hope for going forward that will continue to make you happy? Um, yeah, I'm happy. I've got four wonderful children. Um, I've been married for you know, nearly 17 years now, and I feel as though I'm, I'm happy in my life. I have mental problems. I had mental problems that were largely contributed with cricket. Um, so since I stopped playing cricket, the uh, they subsided a little bit. I don't think they'll ever go away, but you know I will still 
you know, fight me demons, as as the the saying goes. You know, my wife thinks I've got a few more than I should have. Um, but yeah, you know, I I love life. Um, I love doing what I'm doing. I, you know, the work I do with the PCA, you know, the little commentary games, and you know, the radio stuff I do. You know, being in cricket is still. You know, last year I applied to be a selector for England. Um, it wasn't meant to be. They, they chose Angus Fraser, and I thought it was a fantastic selection because he's been everything in the game. Um, I would love to help English cricket in some way, shape, or form because. Because like we've talked about in the in the times, I've got a lot of experience of everything that's good and bad about the game. Um, and I want to help people. That's the only reason, yeah, that's what drives me on at this moment in time. If there's somebody out there that needs help, I will help them in any way, shape or form. They just have to pick the phone up. And that for me will, will drive me through the next part of my career and my life. Um, and hopefully it'll be a good one because, yeah, like I say, I've got a lot to look forward to. Um, mm. And the, the the, the challenge now is for me because I wasn't I'm not saying I wasn't before this but the challenge for me is trying to be the best father I possibly can be to my kids because you know before that during my professional days um, I wasn't always there for my kids so hopefully I can be You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly Thanks for listening and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.